Thank you, Pastor. God bless you tonight. Let me invite you to turn in your Bible to the Old Testament prophet Nahum. And I'd like to begin tonight from Nahum chapter number one and verse number one. Nahum chapter number one, verse number one. And what a great night to be with God's people. Maya, I just enjoyed so much the song service again and how, how powerful was singing holy, holy, holy in this auditorium tonight. And what, what a grand reminder. Just exactly what Brother Bolin said. Uh, my mind was in Revelation chapter number four and Revelation chapter number five. And, uh, my, what is going to sound, if it sounds like that here, he just imagine what it'll sound like around the throne of God when, when the saints of the ages lift up their voices with the beasts and the elders and, and the, and the, and it's just going to be so glorious when we just sing, holy, 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 worthy is the lamb that was slain. So powerful tonight. Thank you. You have your Bible to the book of Nahum. Uh, the preacher mentioned the table out front. He's allowed me to set up. I appreciate it so much. And, and we use the monies from that table to spend time every year with missionaries. Uh, as the preacher said, last month we had the privilege to go to the Far East, Australia, and Papua New Guinea. And, and uh, every year we take some time to spend with missionaries in different places. On that table, the Lord's allowed us to write a number of books, some on this part of the Bible called the Minor Prophets. I don't call them that. Uh, there's a lot of major preaching in these so-called Minor Prophets. And in addition, there's some books for young people as well as some preaching that's been transcribed. And, and all those books we've written for people in independent Baptist churches like Fairhaven Baptist Church. And, and we trust there'll be an encouragement and a help to you. In addition, uh, we placed uh, a little thumb drive back there with 707 messages on it. I had about 50 or 60 or so, give or take a few every year. And so the preaching and the books are available. If you do e-books, they're at Amazon as well. And that's the commercial for the week. So let's just get to the Bible tonight and to the preaching of the Word of God. You have your Bible to the book of Nahum in chapter number 1. The year is somewhere near 760 B.C. And God has raised up a preacher, and to call Jonah a reluctant preacher would be to misuse the word reluctant. God said, Jonah, I want you to rise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it. And, and of course, when Jonah heard, hears the word Nineveh, anywhere but Nineveh. The next thing you know, he goes down to the coastal city of Joppa, and there he pays the fare, and he gets on a boat heading for Tarsus. Good luck knowing where Tarsus is. It seems like the ancient Bible times, they had about as many Tarsuses as we have Springfields in America. I think there's like 21 of them. I mean, there's a Tarsus everywhere you seem to look at, and nobody's sure which Tarsus he was going to, and it really doesn't matter because he never made it. Somewhere out, perhaps in the Mediterranean, maybe in the GNC, uh, the Bible tells us the great storm comes up and the mariners finally know there's no direction, nothing they can do uh, but to throw Jonah into the sea. And as Jonah descends into the water, he must have thought it's all over for me, but the Lord had another idea. And the great fish swallowed up Jonah. And for three days and three nights, he took a course at Whale Baptist College and Finally, the fish got tired of the backslidden preacher. And you know, I have this little thing. I, I don't know if this is right or not, and maybe it's just, I hope so. But I hope when we get to heaven in the Museum of Glory, I hope they have a photo gallery. And what I want is a photo gallery called The Look on Their Faces. You know, there'd be some really good ones. When they're, how about the look on Potiphar's wife's face? When her husband comes home and she's putting dinner, a lunch on the table and, and she says, any new news in the kingdom? And he says, you know, there is. We got a brand new number two, a new prime minister. And she says, anybody we know. And he says, you're not going to believe this. Remember that guy used to work here named Joseph? And wouldn't you just love to see the look on her face? 
How about the look on David's face when all of a sudden he looked up and Nathan the prophet showed up? I mean, David had his sins covered awfully well, and then Nathan comes. Or how about the look on the faces of those in Matthew 7? Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils? Then will I say unto them, I never knew you. Well, I think the story of Jonah gives us another entry into the look on their faces. How about the people on the beach that day when the whale shows up, opens its mouth, and just vomits Jonah onto dry ground? I got to tell you, the look of Jonah's face, but the look on those people's face. I mean, here comes this fish and Jonah comes. And I have the idea that as Jonah is, is, is being thrown out of the mouth of that whale, that his feet are already heading towards the city of Nineveh. And now Jonah shows up at Nineveh and Jonah preaches a very poor message. You know, there were homiletics classes where they teach you how to preach. Evidently, Jonah would have flunked. He walks up and down the streets of Nineveh for three days and there is no compassion. There is nothing in his heart. Jonah couldn't care less for the people. He would rather be anywhere else. And there are not too many things worse on this earth than a preacher preaching because he has to, not because he wants to. And here is Jonah walking up and down the streets yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 40 days and you're all going to burn in hell. 40 days and this place gets wiped out once and for all. 40 days and Nineveh's nothing but a distant memory. And then the impossible happens. No, the Bible tells us the people of Nineveh believe God and they proclaim the fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. It starts with the king of Nineveh and from there it goes down to the princes, down to the common man and then to, well, it has to be a Bible mystery. I certainly don't get it, but the Bible says that even the beasts of Nineveh were crying out unto the Lord. And what do you know, the Bible tells us that God heard their cries. And when God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And you know what comes next. What comes next is that little phrase in the Bible. And every time, every time I read it, I have to say, I'm glad I'm not a Calvinist. What are you going to do? God saw their works, that they turned from the evil way. And God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them. And he did it not. Why, that repentance grabbed the heart of God and God repented of the evil that he had said he would do. And what we have is the feel-good story of the Old Testament. And all we can do is smile at the grace of God. And all we can do is just shake our head at the amazing attitude of that preacher, Jonah. And he sits under the gourd and he gets madder and madder at the Lord. And finally, he screams at heaven, I knew you'd pull something like this. I know you're merciful. I knew this was going to happen all along. For the great mercies of God fell upon Nineveh. Maybe maybe Jonah wasn't happy, but you and I are happy. And we look at the story of Nineveh and we say glory to God. That God is merciful and God is gracious. And even a pagan wicked city like Nineveh can know the hand of the Lord. And it would be awfully nice if the story stopped there. But it didn't. A hundred years later, we get Nineveh part two. And it kind of raises the question, does it not? Because everybody knows the story of Jonah, but few know the story of Nahum. Jonah and Nahum both deal with the city of Nineveh. Jonah and Nahum are both found in the same part of the Bible. And if it matters, Jonah and Nahum are both pretty much the same size. So why is it that we have heard hundreds of messages from Jonah and few, if any, from Nahum? 
Maybe it's because of the way this works. If you're able physically tonight, could I invite you to stand with me as we go to Nahum chapter 1 and verse number 1. Nahum chapter 1, verse number 1, the burden of Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. It's going to go out on a limb and guess that Joel Osteen didn't preach from this verse this morning. (laughs) So, what happened to Nineveh? Father, we ask for your help tonight as we go to the mighty word of God. And and I pray that great conviction would fall upon this auditorium. For someone who has never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that tonight they would run, they would escape the wrath of Christ, that tonight they would be born into God's family. Then, Lord, I'm praying for your children tonight. and, And I pray the revival story of Nineveh, that we would see the sequel. And that tonight, as God's word goes forward, may it fall upon tender hearts. May it fall upon a ready people. And I pray that you would convict us as only you can do. So we come boldly in the great name of Christ. Amen. Thank you so much. Please be seated. So we call it the great revival of Nineveh. And I get that. Because we kind of think, well, what happened to Nineveh? Uh, We'd like to see this happen to Washington, D.C. But you know, while it's often called the revival of Nineveh, that really is a poor choice of words. Revival means to return unto the Lord. Revival is a renewal unto the Lord. And you cannot find a mention in the Bible where Nineveh had ever been right with God before the story of Jonah. There is not a record in the Bible, and for that matter, there is not a a record in their history books of them ever bowing their knee before Jehovah, the God of the Bible. So what we have in Jonah chapter 3 then is, it is not a revival. It is not Nineveh returning to the Lord. What we have in Jonah chapter 3, it is the story of salvation, of people in repentance and faith coming to the Lord. I know it's what we'd like to see in our country, but, but maybe the lesson stands for us as well. The people that need revival in America are not the politicians in Washington. The people who need revival are those who are sitting tonight in churches like Fairhaven Baptist Church. What Washington needs is the same thing America needs. They need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. So revival is due for God's people. It is when God's people repent of their sin. It is when God's people return to their first love for Christ. It is when God's people come back to the word of God. We are the ones in desperate need of revival. Or as my friend Gary Gilmore is known to say, uh, why what America needs is not revival. You cannot be revived until you're vived in the first place. Not exactly sure that's a word, but you know, there's a lot of words that get invented when preachers' tongues get ahead of their heads. So that works as well. But it certainly is a point well taken, isn't it? You can't return to the Lord until you know him in the first place. So what we have is an amazing story in Jonah 3, a story of repentance and faith. They repented. They believed God. The Bible tells us that amazing story. And yet while we come to the end of Jonah with a big smile on her face, and we watch the God of the Bible, that God of the Old Testament, that God that's supposedly simply a God of anger and wrath, And we find him to be a God that not only loves people, there's a special spot in his heart for boys and girls that don't know their right hand from their left. 
And we come to the end of Jonah with a smile in our hearts. And and we come to the end of Jonah. Amazing grace of God is so great. But it wasn't long before Nineveh returned to their old ways. A few years later, they become known and famous as their ruthless Assyrian army begins to march through the world. In the annals of history, there are few armies that were as brutal and as ruthless and as angry as the Assyrian army. The next time we check on the city of Nineveh in the Bible, perhaps, give or take a bit, maybe 20 years after the story of Jonah. And in Isaiah chapter 10, verse number 12, things have changed from the people and the king and the princes who in repentance and faith turned to God. Now in Isaiah 10 and in verse number 12, God said, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria. They had gone from tender hearts to stout, stubborn, arrogant hearts against Almighty God. From there it only gets worse. Thirty years later, it's the Assyrian army that goes into the northern kingdom of Israel. That kingdom that turned from God and turned to their idols. One by one, the kings were more pagan and the kings were more wicked. And God uses the great Assyrian empire to end the northern kingdom of Israel. They will never be heard from again. Not long after that, they invade the land of Judah. Wicked King Sennacherib is leading these vicious soldiers, this wicked army, into the land of Judah. And it seems like Jerusalem and Judah are done for. And yet when you check an ancient map, an accurate ancient map of the Assyrian Empire, it is one of the most incredible maps of world history. Because the Assyrians, and for their day, it was remarkable. They went all the way to the west, to the land of Egypt. They went all the way to the east, well past what we know as the land of Iran, to the seas of the north and the Red Sea in the south. Why, their empire extended in every direction. On a modern world map, I counted more than 20 nations that would have been engulfed in that mighty Assyrian empire. Yet right in the middle, it's like a donut hole. Right in the middle, there's this little spot that they never could get. Not to say they didn't try. Oh, they came to the suburb of Jerusalem called Dothan, and and they certainly gave it their best shot. And yet, that's when the angel of the Lord delivered Jerusalem and delivered Judah. The mighty hand of God protected his people. And this mighty, vicious Assyrian empire could conquer the world, but couldn't conquer that city. They were ruthless. They were brutal. They were angry. By now, the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, they were known for their slavery. They were known for their idol worship. And while most of the ancient nations of the world, it it seemed like they would choose one chief idol, it appears that Nineveh chose them all. Why, Nineveh was famous for their plundering of the nations, their war atrocities. They are known for their murder. God called them a city of blood. They are known for their immorality and wicked sins of the worst sort. And yet to make matters worse, in the records of Nineveh, and outside of Alexandria, Egypt, Nineveh had one of the greatest libraries of ancient history. But there was no record made of Jehovah. There was no talk about what happened under the prophet Jonah. For all the gods they do have, they never recognized Jehovah, the only true and living God. And all you and I can do tonight is shake our head and say it looks so good in the book of Jonah. So what happened to Nineveh? More more specifically, could I put it like this? What happened on day 41? 
Oh, I know for 40 days is perfect. For 40 days, you could ask for anything better. I mean, it's what every preacher dreams of. It's what your pastor longs to see. For 40 days, these people humble themselves. For 40 days, they're crying out mightily unto God. For 40 days, it is a textbook picture as to how people should repent and turn to the Lord. For 40 days, it's absolutely perfect. And I've often tried to imagine what that 40th day must have been like in Nineveh. I suppose the businesses were closed down. I imagine Nineveh was awfully quiet that day. I can picture people walking down the street, kind of looking over their shoulder and maybe looking up. And every dark cloud that arises from the horizon must have caused a stir and a panic. And and I imagine on day number 40, if they were out of their homes at all, the people of Nineveh were treading incredibly lightly. It must have been a fearful day. It must have been a, a, a terrorizing day. And as day number 40 comes, the people of Nineveh will have reason to believe we're not going to be alive to see the sun rise. Aye, this is it. This is our last day upon the earth. Day 40 must have been quite a day. But do you know what happens on day 41? The sun rises. And there was no guarantee of that for Nineveh. No, on day number 41, there is no fire in Bristone from the Lord upon the city. On day 41, there is no ground opening its mouth and, and swallowing these people up. On day number 41, there is no wrath of God. On day number 41, the sun rises. And, and sometimes, if you're in a place like Nineveh, sun rising is the incredible mercy of God. Forty days, it's the classic story of repentance. And on day number 41... There is no death and destruction. And so we don't know how long it takes, but it wasn't long before the people of Nineveh are back to their old ways, if not even worse. And now we have come to the book of Nahum, and all we can do is shake our head and and ask the question, so what happened on day 41? What happened to those people that looked so good, it looked so perfect? I meant business, and I wouldn't say tonight, perhaps you wouldn't join me. And, and why? Hey, those people must have been sincere, and they must have had hearts full of fear. And there is no reason to doubt their sincerity when they cry. Certainly it seems to be real with God. But day number 41 comes. And it looks so promising. But now this is what's happened to the city of Nineveh. What happened on day 41? So a hundred plus years later, give or take a few, it, it is time for God to raise up a preacher by the name of Nahum. There is a reason I love this part of the Bible so much. And, and maybe that reason is Nahum chapter 1, verse number 1. The burden of Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. And that's it. That is absolutely everything we know about Nahum. Why, we don't know what fellowship Nahum belonged to. We don't know what Bible school Nahum attended. You know, all we know about Nahum is that, number one, he had a burden. He had a heavy message that was weighing down on his heart. And all we know about Nahum is that God gave him the book of the vision. That's an unusual thing. It's the only time it reads like that in the Bible. Usually the word of the Lord would come to Hosea. The word of the Lord would come to Amos. God's man would hear God's word and write it down and then preach it. It would appear this time that that Nahum got the message, wrote it down, and then stood up and declared it. But you know, all we know about Nahum, he was from Elkosh. And Elkosh was pretty much like Tarsus. 
There was one in northern Israel. There was one in Judah. There was one up in what we call Iraq. I mean, there were plenty of Elkoshes around and maybe one that we don't even know about. And nobody who's honest has any idea which Elkosh that he came from. So if I stood here tonight and said, here is Mr. Nobody from Nowheresville, that's about the most accurate description that you can get of Nahum. In fact, the book of Nahum isn't even quoted in the New Testament. Why it is such a book in the Bible, and you'll get the idea if you haven't already, that the modern scholar and the liberal seminary professors, they so despise the book of Nahum that they'll arrogantly and boldly come out and say, we wish it weren't even in the Bible. I mean, you talk about nobody from nowhere preaching a message that nobody likes. It's what makes the book of Nahum so beautiful. You know, I just like this. Because a world that is so full of popularity and a world that is so full of populist ministers by big name bloggers and big name writers and big name this and big name that. It's awfully refreshing to come to a whole section in the Bible and read the story of nobody after nobody. Because men like Nahum didn't care whether or not you remembered them. Men like Nahum lived by a a, a proverb. They believed that he must increase and they must decrease. Men like Nahum said it is all about my God and not about me. And I say tonight that American its churches could use a host of preachers like Nahum who are willing to put the honor and the praise and the glory where it belongs in our Lord and Savior. We've got enough big preachers and we've got enough famous men. It's about time we started making our Savior famous again. Nahum would have excelled in that. So here is Mr. Nobody. Here he is from Nowheresville. And now he's going to stand up in the streets of Jerusalem and understand as he begins to declare the words of Nahum. The Syrian Empire is at its zenith. The city of Nineveh is the greatest city in the world. I mean, you talk about courage and you talk about conviction. He is going to take on the mightiest king, the mightiest army, and the mightiest nation in the world. Nahum is incredibly courageous. And now stands up to declare the words that God has given him. And the Bible tells us, he begins in verse number two, God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will make, will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. What happened? Do you find those words a little stunning? Do you see why the liberal seminary professors, they say this book doesn't belong in the Bible? Do you understand why in modern houses of religion, across Indiana and across our land, ministers would never ever dare touch the book of Nahum? And the reason is because the Bible tells us that after that wonderful story of Jonah, after that wonderful story that makes us feel so good, now Nineveh has become so wicked, they have become so evil, that God promises to revenge their atrocities right back on them. If that were bad enough, God says, Nineveh, you are now my adversaries. And now you are my enemies. And all we can do is shake our head and say, what happened on day 41? Go down, if you would, to verse number 6. Who can stand before his indignation and who can abide the fierceness of his anger? I'm pretty sure that's what the English teacher would call a rhetorical question. The answer is pretty obvious. 
His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down on him. Know that marvelous story of Nineveh that we leave in Jonah chapter number three. Now the Bible tells us that God's anger is ready to come down on them like a volcano. God says, when I come down on Nineveh, you're going to be like a, a, a helpless little building that is shaking in the middle of earthquake. This indestructible, massive city of Nineveh is about to meet its match. Oh, there is no army in the world that can do it. There is no kingdom in the world that can handle them. But when Almighty God comes down on Nineveh, they are going to tremble and shake and fall apart. And all we can do is shake our head and say, what happened on day 41? Look at the end of verse number 9. He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. God said, Nineveh, last time when Jonah came, you got a second time. This time there will be no second chance. This time when the judgment of God comes upon you, it's going to come down so hard and so fast there'll be nowhere to run. In verse number 10, while they be folded together as thorns. What a description of Nineveh. Uh, in history, they, they were so impressed with their thinking. Uh, they had schools and universities and, you know, kind of like America has become, like Europe long ago went. I mean, Nineveh come to the place and how intelligent we are. Look at how smart we are. And, and isn't that a Fascinating description. Why these people so impressed with their knowledge, God says they're knurled and twisted together like thorns. People are so smart, they're stupid. I mean, the smartest people in America will look at you and say they can't tell you the defi- the, what the definition of a woman is. The smartest people in America, they are so twisted and they are so demented. They have so many degrees after your name, you can't even count them. And yet for all their knowledge and all their brilliance and all their expertise, they are twisted in their thinking. They are so corrupted, they don't know right and wrong. Just like the city of Nineveh, twisted like thorns. Then it says they are drunken as drunkards. Nineveh was famous for their booze and their drinking. In fact, the night that Nineveh went down, the night they fell to the Babylonians, and did so while their kings were in a drinking fest. Amazingly, years later, there would be a king in the Bible named Belshazzar. And the night that he leads the demise of the Babylonian empire, well, you know the story, with the handwriting on the wall, that king is in a wild drinking party. The Bible tells us at the end of the verse 10, they shall be devoured as stubble fully dry. Like stubble in the desert and the lightning hits it and suddenly it goes up in flames. There's no time to put the fire out. When Nineveh goes down, it'll burn up completely. When Nineveh goes down, it'll happen in an instant. When Nineveh goes down, there will be nowhere to go and nowhere to turn. And as you and I literally sit in this place tonight on the other side of the world across the Tigris River... From the city of Mosul, Iraq, there lie the ruins of the ancient city of Nineveh. They went down so hard and so completely that a few years after Nineveh had gone down, a century or so or two, uh, literally Alexander the Great took his armies over the ruins of Nineveh and the destruction was so massive he didn't even know they were there. In fact, the destruction of Nineveh was so incredibly powerful that for centuries, all the great archaeologists, for centuries, the great experts, for centuries, the scholars and the professors, they doubted whether Nineveh ever existed. You can actually find ancient writings of the scholars pointing out the mistakes in the Bible and the experts agree that Nineveh never existed. 
Until one day the Lord laughed right in their faces and the ruins of Nineveh were uncovered. He does that regularly, doesn't he? What happened on day 41? How about in verse number 14? The Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee. He's looking in the eyeballs of the wicked king of Assyria now. And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee that no more of thy name be sown. God is saying it doesn't matter how many children you have. Your name, your posterity is about to be cut off. Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image and the molten image. When God destroys Nineveh, their little gods, their idols are not going to save them. I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. When they finally discovered the ruins of Nineveh more than 1,500 years later, the temple of Nabu, one of the major deities of Nineveh, was raised to the ground and, and buried for centuries under a pile of ash. But when it was finally blown away and it was finally uncovered, they discovered exactly what God said. The statue of their god Ishtar, he was literally dismembered, prostrate and headless in the ruins of that temple, bowing down for centuries to the living God of heaven that conquered him. And it leaves us with the question, so what actually happened on day 41? In chapter 2, verse number 1, it's more of the same. God said, I'll dash you in pieces. In chapter 2, verse 2, God said, I'll empty you out. In chapter 2, verse number 6, God said, I will utterly defeat you. And the Bible says in verse 7 of chapter 2, that things will go so bad that Huzab shall be led away captive. Can I just stop there for a second? It's not exactly the message tonight. But there is one reason why I love my King James Bible so much. That word, Huzab. You say, well, what's Huzab? And that's the thing, nobody knows. I mean, there are a handful of words, especially in the Old Testament, there are a handful of words that nobody knows what they mean. I mean, nobody, there's no way to know. There was no way for our friends back in 1611 to know. There's just no way. And do you know what virtually every single modern Bible, and I say that word Bible with a small b if it matters, do you know that every one of these modern, do you know what they do? They wing it. They just make something up. And here's a perfect example. They, they just make something up. They have absolutely no idea, but we got to put something in there. And I'm glad tonight to have an honest Bible because what Huzab is, it is just a transliteration of the Hebrew word or the Aramaic word, whatever it would be in the book. I, I mean, nobody knows. And so instead of winging it and making it up, basically that word Huzab is saying we're going to have to wait to get to heaven to know what Huzab is. That may bother the scholars at the World Council of Churches, but I'm happy with that. So whatever the Huzab is, the Bible says she shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up and her maid shall lead her as with the voice of doves tabering upon their breasts. The only sound you hear when Nineveh goes down are the maidens whimpering and beating themselves. I find that phrase fascinating because the name Jonah literally means the dove. When Jonah the dove comes and preaches, when Jonah the dove declares the message, when Jonah the dove walks up and down the streets of Nineveh saying 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, it didn't matter that he was a poor preacher. It didn't matter that he wasn't cool and had technology. It didn't matter that Jonah didn't care. None of those things counted because the word of God pierced their souls and their hearts. When the dove preached a very bad message, it got an incredible result. But now, the only sound you hear coming out of Nineveh 
are the ladies whimpering like doves. What happened on day 41? When Jonah preached, they humbled themselves. But in chapter 2, verse 8 of Nahum, Nineveh of old is like a pool of water, yet they shall flee away. Jonah preaches, they fall on their knees. Nahum preaches, now you're going to be running for your life. When Jonah preached, well, the Bible tells us the conviction was great. But in chapter 2, verse 10, she's empty and void and waste, and her heart melteth. The knees smite together. The knees that once fell on their knees to pray are the knees that are being knocked together in fear. Much pain is in all loins and the faces of them all gather darkness. What happened on day 41? In Jonah chapter 3 verse 10, when Jonah preached, God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them and he did it not. But when Jonah or Nahum preaches in chapter 2.13, God said, Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. I will burn her chariots in the smoke, and the sword shall devour thy young lions. And I will cut off thy prey from the earth, and the voice of thy messengers shall no more be heard. The voice of thy messengers. One of the most famous Ninevites in the Bible was the Rabshikah. A messenger with a loud, arrogant voice taunting Jerusalem and the God of the Bible. God says there's coming a day when your Rabshikah speaks his last vile message. What happened on day 41? I mean, we read Jonah and it's so great. But if we take the time to read the book of Nahum, all we can do is shake our head and say, what happened to that city? In World War II, especially in Europe, but in Asia as well, but especially in Europe, the battles were famous for their foxholes. Men would dig their trenches and sometimes they would stay for hours and even days. And, and you know, I try to read a book or two every year of World War II especially and and you know what I've concluded, and some of you perhaps know, have loved ones that were there, maybe somebody even that was your war. And while you can write a book and you can talk about it and describe it, you know, those of us who weren't in World War II, we can barely imagine what it must have looked like. But we'll never get is what it sounded like and what it smelled like. Those men in the foxholes for hours, they saw the ravages of war, bombs flying in every direction, bullets whizzing right past their ears. They heard the screams and the cries of those that were struck. They knew what war looked like and what it smelled like and what it sounded like. And as men were dug in those foxholes for a long time, those, those places became famous for what were called foxhole conversions. Men would get in those foxholes and and thinking, I'm not going to live. I'm not going to get out of here. I'm going to die. And certainly many of them were carried home or were buried in, in, in that part of the world. And yet as they were dug in those foxholes and fear dominated their life, there were men in those foxholes that said, God, if you ever get me out of here, I'll go to church. If you ever get me out of here, I'll get saved. If you ever get me out of here, there were Christians saying, I'll return to the Lord. If you ever get me out of here, I'll get my life right with God. In the foxhole, there's a lot of conversions in the foxholes. There's a lot of people that are returning to the Lord. But then the men who survived, they're on planes or they're on ships and they're coming into New York Harbor. 
And one day they're riding down New York City and, and down Broadway or some such street or Fifth Avenue and, and why the confetti is flying, making the sky invisible. And, and they're going down the street where a million plus people have gathered and the brass bands are playing and the people are cheering and the confetti is flying. And there were a lot of promises made to God in the foxholes that never got past Broadway. It's one thing to cry out to God when we need him. But it's something very, very different to live for him when the tragedy is over. You know, there were a lot of people shaking and quivering in their basements during COVID. And I know we all look back with a different perspective. But three years ago, about this time of the year, next month or two, there were some pretty important people looking into television cameras. And people pretty much had the idea that if you walk out of your house, you're going to die. If you go to church, you're going to die. It's okay to go to the liquor store, but if you go to church, you're going to die. And there were a lot of people quaking in fear. There were a lot of people literally in panic. And at that time, there were a lot of promises and guarantees being made to God. You know, I know we have the idea, oh, somebody's facing surgery tomorrow. Boy, you better go and tell them to get right with God. But could I tell you that when somebody's facing surgery tomorrow, you usually don't have to tell them to get right with God. Because if they have ever been right with God, they are. But then one day they look in the camera and they kind of have the, COVID, what COVID? What are you talking about? Or, or one day, the sickest of the sick is being rolled out of the hospital on a wheelchair and the sun is shining. And, and when the disease is over and when the surgery is a success and when the war is over, all those foxhole conversions, all those decisions made on the deathbed, all of those choices made down there in the basement, all of a sudden they seem to be forgotten. And we have our own question. So what happens on day 41? Look, I get religion in America treats God like an ATM. God, you're going to make me healthy. You're going to make me wealthy. You're going to make me happy. But most of all, whenever I need you, I'm going to stick my card into the ATM. And then, Lord, you're going to do what I tell you to do. You're going to fix the problems that I can't fix. When I need you, then I'm going to cry out to you. But after the problem is settled and after everything is done, that's when you can just go back into the machine and I'll take over from here. Thank you very much. Is that how we're going to treat God? See, this is why Nahum is in the Bible, because there is only so long we're going to play that game with God. There's only so long we're going to say, I am afraid, I am sick, I am hurting, I'm in the middle of a war, we're in the middle of a pandemic, I need this and I need that, so God, you got to fix me, God, you got to fix me. There's only so long it's going to work until the Lord's going to expect to see some of our choices actually come to fruition. Where God expects the vows we make to be real. There's a song. It's a popular song. and I just got to tell you, it's just not my favorite. But that's okay. It may be your favorite. Eh, if it is, I don't know. Just getting favorite song. But so it's a real popular song. And it goes like this. And the God on the mountain is still God in the valley. When things go wrong, he'll make them right. And the God of the good times, he's still God in the bad times. And the God of the day is still God in the night. Okay. I, I can see why people like that. But the truth is you don't need to remind people of that. 
Everybody knows when there's nobody that's going to rescue me now but God, that God's going to have to do it. I know it feels good to think that way. It feels good maybe to sing that way for some. And it feels good to, to kind of talk about that. But, but the truth of the matter is when we are in a disaster that we can't fix, we know it's God or we're in big trouble. But you know, 40 years of being in churches, there's a song I've never, ever, ever heard. Never heard this one. I don't know. There's some of you here good with music, so maybe you want to write this song. I don't need any credits, Okay. But I've never heard a song that goes like this. And the God of the valley, he's still supposed to be our God when we're back on the mountain. And the God of the bad times, he's still supposed to be a God when the good times come. And the God that brings us through the night, he's still supposed to be our God in the day. Because we're awfully good at doing what Nineveh did. We're awfully good at crying out unto God when we're in trouble. We're awfully good at crying out to God when we need him. When we have a problem that I can't fix or you can't fix, then we only know it's God and God alone that can handle this. And we're more than ready to cry out to him. And every child of God that's been saved for, you know, maybe 30 minutes, you know with me that God is gracious and God is merciful and God is kind and And God has bailed us out so many times we can't even stop to name them. But what happens on day 41? What happens when the sun is shining again and war is over now? And and what happens when we're all feeling good and we're out of the hospital? And and what happens when we get a new job? And what happens when the tragedy is gone? And what happens to you and to me on day 41? I'm afraid what happens to us is pretty much what happened in Nineveh. When we vow a vow unto the Lord, we better be sure to pay that vow. I find it fascinating that Jonah and Nahum both end with a question. The question at the end of the book of Jonah, the Lord looks at that backslidden preacher and he says, Should not I spare Nineveh that great city? Wherein are more than six or thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and also much cattle. What a question. It's God saying, how could I not have mercy on them? But when we come to Nahum 3.19, it says, there is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. All that hear the bruit. Bruit is the old English word that means the news report. All that hear the bruit of thee shall clap the hands over thee. For upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually? They both end with questions. One question says, how could I do anything but have mercy? The other one says, how could I do anything but judge them? I know we have been taught that the mercy of God just keeps running and running as long as we think we need it. But you know, if you're not saved, the Bible always says, now is the accepted time, now is the day of salvation. Because if you walk out of that door tonight without Jesus as your Savior, there is no guarantee that God's going to give you another opportunity tomorrow. There is no guarantee that you're going to have another Sunday to come and hear Pastor Mitchell preach the Bible. No, tonight is the night to be saved. If you know Christ is your Savior and we sit in this building tonight and our hearts are not right with God, tonight God has brought us to a place in His grace and in His mercy where we have a choice to make. We can repent and return unto the Lord tonight 
Or we can walk out that door and hope that God doesn't deal with it out there tomorrow. Tonight, we have an opportunity. By this time tomorrow, someone may not. The great, great story of mercy and compassion has turned into the day we shake our head and we can only say, what happened on day 41? Father in heaven, I pray that tonight the mighty word of God would do what it does so well into our hearts and in our lives. And for someone who's never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray the great call of the Bible would be real for them. Today is the day of salvation. Lord, help them boast not thyself of tomorrow. May they know that not one of us in this room have any guarantee what tomorrow brings forth. I pray that tonight they would be saved. I pray for your people. And and Lord, we are so prone to join the world of religion in our country and And assume that we can do the business with God on our terms. I pray you would cause us to understand what Nineveh did not. That one day the invitation is over. So Lord, I ask you to do your work in this place, even in this hour, with our heads bowed and eyes 